If we've learned anything about the church in Corinth, as we've been walking through this epistle, it's that they were not exactly the church that we want to imitate. We're learning in the evening about the glory of a true and orderly gospel church. And uh, the church in Corinth was, is not set forth as a pattern to be followed. They had divided into quarreling factions according to the favorite teacher of each group. They had begun to degrade and doubt the ministry of the Apostle of Christ who was also their spiritual father. The Apostle Paul, they had disregarded the duty that was theirs to deal with sin in their midst. They were what the, the ancients would call a disorderly church. And yet they were still considered a, a church, a, a real lampstand of Christ. He saw fit to send an apostle and have the apostle to write his words to them, to instruct them, to help them. Christ had not written off this church yet, but they were disorderly. If we've learned anything about Paul, it's that he always labors to bring struggling saints back to the foot of the cross. How does he do this? Well, their favorite teachers were not crucified for them, but Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners. The world had no real wisdom, but the wisdom of God is manifest and displayed in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The church must deal with sin. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain, has been sacrificed. The apostle doesn't know any other avenue. He doesn't know any other route to take with these churches except the one that gets the quickest to the cross. Because he knows that as, as, as they drift from the cross, as soon as the crucified Savior moves out of our line of sight, we then begin to quarrel. We, we then begin to go after the things of the world. We then begin to forget the duties that He's given us and what He's called us to be. And so that's what He does. And if we've learned anything about God as we've worked through this epistle, it's that His desire is that the church be holy, holy, and holy. That is, holy in our love for one another, holy in our thinking about one another and the world, holy in our attitude towards sin, we've learned the people of God are supposed to be different. The Corinthians had brought the world into the church with them and the apostle says, you're not like them anymore, therefore you can't act like them anymore. You can't bring that with you. Now in the close of chapter 5, Paul made mention of the differing spheres in which judgments can or cannot, may or may not, or ought to take place. He said that the church is to judge those inside the church, but the church is not to judge those outside the church. In other words, he summed up that, that matter in that chapter by asserting that the church has the power and the tools necessary to handle its own business. And he had just severely rebuked them for not dealing with open, scandalous sin in the church. Remember, there were two primary issues in that chapter. There was the man who had his father's wife, but above that, what Paul wrote to them about was their responsibility to deal with that. The way I would word it is to take care of the business that needs to be taken care of. Handle matters that are to be handled within the church. Well, how ironic then, they, they, they would not deal with that open, scandalous sin. How ironic is it then that we come to chapter 6 and we find out that there were actually some issues that they were willing to deal with and, and actually deal with them very severely. What kind of issues were they? Well, look at verse 1. It begins by saying, When one of you has a grievance against another. That word grievance actually just means an issue or a matter that could be discussed. So a matter that could be discussed against somebody else in the church. At the end of verse 2, 
The last two words of verse 2 are the phrase, trivial cases. That means matters that are insignificant. They're not very important, not a big deal. Small matters. And then at the end of verse 3, we have this phrase, matters pertaining to this life. That is, they have no eternal significance. So whatever these issues were, and we don't know exactly what they were, but we know that they were nowhere near as important as what we had just been talking about in chapter 5. These were small matters that were matters of discussion that we would, we would say this could have been talked out between two people. And yet it was this kind of thing that they had taken up with great concern. The man has his father's wife. We're not even going to talk about it. We're just going to carry on. Little matters that could be discussed between one another, this is where we'll take our stand. This is the hill they said that we'll die on. These temporal, insignificant matters between them were the things that had driven them to action. Not only that, but in dealing with these problems, we find that the Corinthian church was again failing to deal with matters in the proper way. They were going to secular courts to handle business that should have been dealt with in-house. They were going outside to deal with matters that should have been dealt with inside. And, and the subject matter of this chapter, besides the fact that we don't really know what the, the, the issues were, the, the subject matter is not hard to understand. When you read this chapter, there's nothing really confusing about what's going on. They had little problems that should have been dealt with between them, but instead they were going to court taking one another to court, suing one another over these types of things. So you can see the connection between chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, they were neglecting to use church power with regard to very serious sins. In chapter 6, they were abdicating church power, giving it away to, to the secular courts to deal with matters that we, we could call interpersonal quibbles, little disagreements between people that could have been handled between them. And in both of these circumstances, we, we see that one of Paul's main concerns is the reputation of the church, the reputation of the gospel, the, the reputation of Christianity, and really the reputation of Christ Himself amongst the unbelieving world as they watch how the church handles their business. So one lesson that we're learning is, is just that. How the church manages the affairs of her house will either bring great honor or great reproach upon her Lord. Not just her, but her Lord. A body, a physical body, that is consistently inflicting injury upon itself will draw out this diagnosis from the doctor. The head must be sick. This is not the way a body should function. There's something wrong inside the head if a body is inflicting injury upon itself because that's not natural. That's not normal. And so whether we like it or not or whether we agree with it or not, the unbelieving world is watching the body of Christ and they are using the actions of the church to make judgments not just about the church, but about the head of the church, the Lord of the church. Now, of course, we would say the problem is not Christ. The problem is men. The problem is that we are failing to act like we should act. The saints are not acting like saints. It's not His fault, it's our fault, but they don't understand that. So members of a church who take one another to court over inconsequential matters are acting contrary to the nature of their head. And those who do this, we see in, in these eight verses, are being, number one, unchristian, number two, unbrotherly, and number three, unchurchly. Unchristian, unbrotherly, unchurchly. So number one, they're acting unchristian. That is to say, to act like this is contrary to the way a Christian should act. Dragging 
personal business between believers before the outside world. Now, the situation here is going to court. Nowadays, you don't have to go to court to make your public business known. We, we have the, 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 the worldwide jury of our peers on the Internet. So this doesn't just have to be court. This could be social media. This could just be a conversation of other people, maybe in the workplace. But dragging your personal business or the personal business of the church and the problems of the church before the outside world, when somebody does that, they are showing that they're not thinking the way a Christian thinks. Christians don't think that way. Now, I'm not saying Christians can't do that or don't do that. I'm saying when they do that, they're thinking in an unchristian way. Something needs to be changed. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? I say these verses show that the Corinthians were being unchristian. What do I mean? Well, what do we know about Christians? First, Christians are people. Christians are people. And in, in this, we're the same as everybody else. We're human beings. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another. Notice it doesn't say if, but when. Or literally, having a grievance or having a matter against one another. Paul is not speaking into the realm of theory. Paul is speaking into the realm of actuality. It was happening. There were, without a doubt, issues between them that had led to this problem. Now, why is that? How could this be? Well, the answer is because Christians are people. Christians are people. Christians are human beings. Christians are sinners. Christians will inevitably have conflict. There's no way to get around it. There are some who seem to think that becoming a Christian means an end of all conflict with our fellow man, especially other Christians. Now that I'm a Christian, well, surely I won't have conflict with other Christians. Now, there are some who seem to think that becoming fellow church members means that there will never be conflict, at least with those people, because we're members of a church together. It's the opposite. The opposite is often the case. Because being a Christian doesn't mean that we're not people anymore. It doesn't mean that we're not sinners anymore. Being joined together in a church does not mean an end of all conflict. Rather, it's simply agreeing that when the conflict comes, not if, but when the conflict comes, you've already agreed that you will cultivate Christian sympathy. That you will be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation, mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. At least that's the case in this church because that's what our church covenant says. Becoming fellow members in the church doesn't mean there's no conflict. It just means that when the conflict comes, we've already agreed on the terms with which we will deal with the conflict. Christians are people, and Christians and or people are, are sinners. The Christians can and do and will have conflicts with one another, but what else do we know about Christians? Not, they are people, but Christians are different. Christians are different. They're, a, a, they're different. We are different than other people. He says... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So here we clearly have humanity divided up into two groups, the unrighteous and the saints. Christians are people, but we're saints. We're saintly people. Right now, already, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. You are a holy one, a set-apart one. No act of the church needs to declare you a saint. You are a saint set apart by God, for God, by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. 
That makes us different than other people. Notice what else he says about Christians being different. This with regard to our future. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Two groups of people, the saints, the world. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? We, saints, angels, not, not the saints, a different group. This is the, a description of something that is true about Christians. Now, without going into the details of what this may or may not be teaching, and, and there are many theories about what this actually looks like in, in, in application, we can at least say this. I think this is fairly unanimous. What he's saying is, the saints of God will someday be exalted above all the world and even the angels that we will sit with Christ as He presides in the judgment over everyone else. In other words, there's going to come a day when, the fall, with, when fallen men and angels look at their judge and as they look at Him in their vision, they will see the saints of God sitting with Him in their judgment. Not that we're going to be giving Him counsel or advice. Not that He's going to ask us, what do you think? But we're going to be on His side as He executes judgment. So presently, we're different from fallen men. We're, we're saints. We're the people of God. We're sinners, so we still have conflict. But we're saints, and so we have a different method of dealing with conflict than the men of the world. We, we can't always use that as an, as an excuse. Well, we're people. We're sinners. That is true. But we're saints, which means when we have conflict, we deal with things differently and even eschatologically and eternally, we're, we're going to be separated from fallen men. We're, we're not like them in that regard. Christians are people. Christians are different. And Christians are gifted. Because of this difference between us and fallen men, Christians are competent people, gifted by God to handle matters of conflict. Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He asks, are, are you competent, incompetent to try trivial cases? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. He's assuming, no, you are. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? He's assuming you can judge matters of this life. You're competent to do this. He says, in so many words, because of who you are now, Saints, and because of who you will someday be on the side of the Lord and the judgment, you are perfectly equipped to handle small disagreements. You're, you're able to do this. This is not outside of the, 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 the competency of the Christians or, or the church. In chapter 1 verse 5, he said to this church that they had been enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. They are perfectly capable of sorting through these problems precisely because they are Christians. And we are the same. We have these gifts. But what had the Corinthians done? They had gone to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. So they were taking one another down to the courthouse instead of going down to the church house. And they would go before an unrighteous judge, a pagan judge, an unbelieving judge, rather than coming before the saints, the believers, to help them work through their problems. And in this, they were acting in an unchristian way. This is not the way Christians act. They were forgetting or had forgotten that we're all men, that we're all sinners, and sinners sin. A Christian keeps that in his mind. Sinners sin. We're all sinners. Being a Christian doesn't make us less than human, but it does make us more than human in a sense. And so we not only have and still have some of that natural proclivity to sin, which will lead to conflict, but we also have that supernatural proclivity to love and forgiveness. Think about the mindset that is required to take a brother or sister to court. That attitude is looking. Just give me somebody with some power, with some force, even the power of the sword itself, 
to make my brother, to make my sister pay for what they did to me. I want to squeeze out of them everything I can for what they've done to me. That's what attitude leads to this. Or if it's not court, drawing it out in public. I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to ruin their reputation. I'm going to slander them. I'm going to get everything I can out of them and leave them with nothing if I can just earn some of my dignity back or reap back something of what they've taken from me. That's not Christian. That's not the way Christians think. The, 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 the Christian attitude says... Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, you can't pray that if you're not a forgiving person. You can't say, oh God, I forgive no one, but you better forgive me. No, Christ goes on to say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is He saying we have to earn forgiveness by... Meeting out forgiveness? No, he's saying the person who doesn't forgive is not a Christian. They're not a forgiven person. Christians are forgiven people. And therefore we ought to be forgiving people. It's the unbeliever. Somebody who has no comprehension of what man is, that men are sinners, that, that these types of things happen, no, no desire to forgive. It's the unbeliever who demands, very often, who demands a kind of superhuman perfection from his fellow man as he acts toward him and then responds with great offense and harshness when he's wronged in any way. When you're acting towards me, you had better treat me like I am God. And if you don't, I will bring the wrath of God. That's how an unbeliever thinks. Because they think themselves to be God. The unbeliever pretends he's God, but a Christian, a Christian knows he's not God. And he knows that his brother is not God. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We have a dispute. Why would I act like I can exact from you some sort of eternal penance or, or recompense from you like you've sinned against me as if I'm God? I'm not God. The Christian, like his God, knows the frame of his brothers and sisters. A Christian knows that they are dust. A Christian knows his brothers and sisters are not without their own faults and sinful tendencies like himself. A Christian knows that his brother is also, just like himself, subject to misjudgments, miscalculations, forgetfulness, and even sinful passions. It's not beyond a Christian to sin. And therefore, a Christian acts with tenderness, forgiveness. Responding this way, taking one another to court, dragging these things before the public and outsiders is unchristian. This is not the way Christians handle matters. But secondly, it's unbrotherly. Unbrotherly. The way these Corinthians were acting, Paul says in so many words, is not the way brothers treat one another. Look at verses 4 through 6. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now that first statement or that first question could be interpreted as a, a statement or translated as a statement that says basically, go and find the least one in the church to handle this stuff. But either way, as he moves through this, these three verses, he introduces this language of brotherhood. We're dealing with a dispute between the brothers. Brother goes to law against brother. Paul is saying... You are brothers. Brothers shouldn't do this. Their lawsuits were unbrotherly. The Scriptures are clear that there is a special relationship between the saints that is to be understood by looking at the relationship that, that biological family members share with one another, and specifically that of brothers and sisters. 
Christians share a spiritual, familial bond with one another. We have the same Father, who is God our Father. We are commanded to pray, our Father. We have the same Father. We have the same elder brother, the Lord Jesus. We have the family seal, who is the Holy Spirit of God. We might call that the family resemblance, the family mark of ownership and possession. We've been brought into the same spiritual household, the household of God. And so as spiritual brothers and sisters, we have a special spirit-wrought love for one another. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there Peter makes reference to a sincere brotherly love. A love between brothers that is not like the love that we have with anybody else. We are to supplement our godliness or our inward piety, he says in 2 Peter 1.7, with brotherly affection. And then he says, and brotherly affection with love. That's a, a different kind of love. There is a different kind of affection that we have between brothers and sisters in Christ than we have with anybody else in the world. A special kind of love. And without this special kind of love, you can be sure you do not know God. As John says in 1 John 4, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you don't have this kind of love, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter what you know, what you profess, what you preach. None of that matters if you don't love your brothers. A special kind of love. Brothers also have special rules. I call this the rules of the household. We all have this. Every, every mother and father in here has said at some point, in my house... You're going to do this. Well, here we do this. That might be what they do over there, but this is my house. We have household rules. And as brothers in the household of God, there are household rules. And we are the household of God, the church of the living God, 1 Timothy 3. We are God's house, Hebrews 3, 6. And so as you all know, every, every house has special rules. For example... If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Those are the household rules. God says, in my house, this is how we deal with things. That the world might deal with matters that way, but in my house, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And you know the rest. God commands a private, quiet meeting. Why? To protect the reputation of our brothers and sisters. For the disorderly, Paul says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. How many of you little children have done this? You've warned a sibling as a brother or as a sister. Well, you better not do that. Mama said... You, you know dad's going to be mad if you... That's what you're doing. You're warning them as a brother. And if they go on in that action, you just go away. You say, I've warned them, I'm getting out of here because something bad is going to happen in this area and I don't want to be here when it happens. You warn them as a brother. Those are the household rules. For brother to go to law against brother is to go against those household rules. It was to act contrary to the special relationship and love that Christians are to have for one another. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 25, no house divided against itself will stand. Brothers in a household should seek to strengthen the house. Brothers and sisters, you children, as you grow up, your job in your household is to work together to make that house stronger, not make it more awful. You might have little siblings, and you see mom and dad are always after the little ones, it's not your job to make it worse for mom and dad, give them more to do, but as you get older, you come in and be the one that helps mom and dad, that builds the house, strengthens the house. That's what brothers and sisters should do. Strengthen the house. Don't tear it down. But when brother goes against brother, that house will soon fall. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Conflicts will arise. 
but they cannot be allowed to boil over as to take the form of two opposing armies, each seeking to conquer the other. Our goal is to win our brother and strengthen the house, not conquer and tear down. And so I would say this, if you have an issue with somebody in this church, you better settle it in the order of the household rules or everybody else may as well just assume it's your desire to tear down the church. I want this church to crumble, therefore I do not follow the household rules. I let these things stir within me and boil up to the point of explosion. The house divided against itself cannot stand. We have special household rules and we must follow them. Brothers can also bring shame upon a family. What happens when brother goes to law against brother? It brings shame upon the whole family. The family name is dragged through the mud. Most of you, maybe not many of you young ones, but some of you would know if I said the Hatfields and the McCoys, you would say there's a a couple of families that spent generations dragging those names through the mud to the point that if I named my next son Devil Ants, you'd say, whoa, a Hatfield? Those, Those names have already been so tarnished Devil, probably not a good name anyway. Those names have been so tarnished by that family because of what they spent years doing and and quarreling and feuding and killing one another. And, And that can happen when the children come along and the parents can do all that they've done to try to establish a good reputation. And then the young ones come along behind them and tear it down so that when that name is heard, they say, oh, I've I know a thing or two about that family. Paul says. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? The brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Paul wanted to shame them. I say this to your shame. Why? Because their actions are shameful. This kind of activity amongst Christians brings shame upon our father. It brings shame upon the rest of the children. Shame upon the whole household of God. The name of God is blasphemed amongst unbelievers in the world because of the way Christians treat one another. And, 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 and it's not necessarily that we, just because we have disputes, but we take our disputes out into the world and let everybody else see and make a judgment, make a determination. When God has said, keep this stuff between you. Keep it quiet. Why? I don't care what people think. God cares what people think. God cares what people think about His church and His Son. Two brothers go to law before unbelievers. That phrase, before unbelievers, the the emphasis is that you're taking this thing and making it a show before the outside world, lost people. What are they going to say? They're going to say, look at those Christians. They boast about their all-wise God. And they say things like, Our Savior is the wisdom of God given to men. They talk about the Holy Spirit being a spirit of wisdom and understanding. And they don't even have a one of them wise enough to settle their own little disagreements. I don't want to be a Christian if that's how they act. I don't want to be a part of that family if that's how they act. Now again, we can say all day long, whoa, 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 we're we're not acting like Christians. We're not not doing right. And it is true to say, well, we're not preaching ourselves. We're preaching Christ. Don't look to us. Look to Him. But we are His body on the earth. And they will make judgments about the head according to how the body acts. It's shameful because it brings shame. And sometimes the best, best method to bring repentance and help somebody see The error of their ways is to show them how shameful their actions are. Shame them. And that's what Paul says. I say this to your shame. We read in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant that his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Christ adds this comment, So also my heavenly Father, our Father, will do to every one of you If you do not forgive your brother from the heart. 
the brotherly thing to do in conflicts like this, whatever it might be, small things, relatively small or comparatively small, the brotherly thing to do is go to him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. If he listens, if he hears you out, forgive, the matter is done. You move on. You forgive from the heart. If necessary, to go further, then you go further in the steps given to the household by the head of the house. Follow the household rules. It's not as though we don't have any instruction on how to deal with matters in the church. That's what Paul's getting at. You've, you've got everything you need. What's the, what's the confusion? It was unchristian. It was unbrotherly. And thirdly, it was unchurchly. Unchurchly. That is to say, responding to each other in this way is not the way that we who are members of one another, and that's a biblical phrase, in the church, it's not the way that we in the church should act. It's unbecoming of fellow church members. It's contrary to the commands of Christ for a church. It is unchurchly. Notice he says in verses 7 and 8, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now notice Paul uses that little phrase, one another. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. That little phrase, every time you see that as you read through the New Testament, when you see one another, your mind should come into the walls of this room and picture the people sitting in these pews, first and foremost. It brings us inside the borders of the local church and, and lays out the, the interpersonal responsibilities that we have first to those believers that we are in contact with in our church. And in the New Testament, among many other things, we are commanded to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, trust one another, be patient with one another, live in harmony with one another, be concerned for one another, be compassionate toward one another, give preference to one another, be kind to one another, live in peace with one another. And we could go on and on and on, but you will not find one single place in the New Testament where it says, sue one another. If you can't get it settled out, just go to court. You won't find that one. Because that's not how we treat one another. As a matter of fact, if we would just obey all of these other one another's, it would eradicate the need or the, the thought that we would even take one another to court. We read from Matthew 18, 15 already. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's local church victory. I've won my brother. I benefited him like a prize. I went and did the hard thing, but I came out the victor because I came out with my brother. I've won. But rather than win... Their brothers, these Corinthians, had already suffered defeat. They had all lost. Because they traded all of these many blessed one another's, love one another, serve one another, be at peace with one another. They traded all of that for lawsuits with one another. That's not the way church members act. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. The fact, he says, the fact that it's even gotten this far is a loss. A total loss. Not to mention the public reproach that they would suffer as a church. All of this is contrary to the one thing that we see constantly repeated in the New Testament, and that is the matter of church unity. And this is where Paul began in chapter 1 as he appealed to them for unity. Remember, obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. It's number one, at the top, primary and consistent, ongoing. You never get to the point where you say, all right, we have unity. What else can we labor for now? No, it must be a, our constant labor. 
As Calvin said, we ought to strive with all care to keep unity among us, which cannot be done unless we forget many offenses and exercise mutual forbearance. You forbear with me, I forbear with you, and whenever there are offenses, we just go ahead and fix it in our mind because we've agreed to do it. I'm going to forget a lot of them. Forget, not meaning, put it in my mental bank and keep that for when the time comes that I can dump it all back out again. Forget many offenses. That is the way that we strive and labor after unity. The local church is a community of people where conflicts should be dealt with and settled long before they get to this point of going to law or lawsuits. And unity must be surprised in the local church that even when our personal rights are challenged, we agree to put them in the back seat if that means we gain unity. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying it would be better for you just to suffer the wrong and let it go. If, have you been defrauded? Just take the, take the defrauding and let it go. Forget it. That would be better, he says, than to let this thing boil up to the point of going to court before unbelievers and slandering the name of Christ before the whole world. Personal justice and personal rights and personal preferences are always to be sacrificed for the sake of unity amongst the brethren in a church. In these types of cases. But so often, we care less about the reputation of the church and less about our brothers and sisters then we do the fact that we've been wronged. All, all we can see, you've heard the phrase, I saw red, or, or I just blacked out. I don't know what happened. I just went off on them. All we can see is, I've been wronged. I've been wronged. I've been wronged. I've been wronged. Me, 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 I, I, I. That's all we care about. Paul had a different priority. Christ had a different priority. And it was the reputation of Christ in the world through what was being displayed from the church. Now none of this is meant to justify the fact that someone is defrauded or wronged. That's sinful. If sinful things are taking place, they need to be and must be addressed. That's chapter 5. And here he's saying, and when you address them, address them properly within the church. So we're not justifying someone being defrauded but that is also no reason to let the name of Christ be slandered by the way we deal with these conflicts. At the end of the day, if we must, or we're put in a place where we have to choose between myself being defrauded, I'm, I've received wrong. If my options are take the wrong and swallow it, or defame Christ in the eyes of the world. I must choose to take the wrong and swallow it. Because I've been wrong, so what? Because in that option, there's one. If it's me or Christ, there's one who deserves to be defrauded. One who deserves. One who can receive the accusation of wrongdoing in any situation. One who deserves to have his name dragged through the mud. And that one is not Jesus. It's not his name. That nobody in this room can drag my name through the mud to the extent that it ought to be dragged through the mud. And the same goes for every one of us. Our names ought to mean nothing in comparison to the name of Christ. That's what he's saying. Just, just suffer the wrong. Take, take the defrauding. Whatever it is. Have you lost money? So what? You're going to trade that for the name of Christ? For the unity of the church and for the sake of Christ's name, just Swallow it. Let it go. He says, and anything less is unchurchly. This is not the way the church of Christ acts. We are Christians here. We are brothers and sisters. And here we are fellow church members. Which means, while conflicts and grievances will surely arise, our relationship to one another, church members, that relationship is established already on the presupposition that we have agreed to work through those matters together 
in a biblical way. That, that is a part of the covenantally binding agreement that brings us together. As church members, we've already decided. Conflict comes, deal with it biblically. That's settled. That's what makes us a body. So we are to love one another. We are to forgive one another. We have to remember the methods that our Lord has prescribed for us to work through conflict. And remember that those methods are always best. Always. Those methods are always the most loving. So if, you have to, if you're thinking in your mind, which is more loving? My brother has sinned against me. Which is more loving? Go and tell him his fault between me and him alone. Or let it build up in, inside me and grow as a root of bitterness between us. I, I don't want, I, keep it quiet so that he's not offended and I'll just hold it as long as I can. Which of those is more loving? Well, the first one is more loving. The ways of Christ are always more loving. They're always the most peaceful. They're always the most God-glorifying. While they might not be the most comfortable, they might not be the most convenient, they might be sometimes a little hard to do, they're always the best. We have to remember that. He's given us ways, and those ways are always the best. We must remember that the church of Jesus Christ is a garden enclosed, which means it is an exclusive society with its own rules and procedures for handling its own business. And that's why we, we say when outsiders or, or other spheres say, well, you can't meet for worship or you can't do this. We say, well, we have our own way of conducting these types of affairs. We'll make that decision. If we make that decision, that'll be between us. It's not because of what you have said. We have procedures for handling that type of thing and this type of thing, conflicts between us. We, God has given us what we need. Our confession says, All that are admitted under the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof, according to the rule of Christ, and that no church members, upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them toward the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order, or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church, or administration of any ordinances, upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. Do your duty according to the Word of God. Don't disturb anything. What's more important, that I, that I get my justice or uh, church order? Church order is more important. And wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. When we wait upon the church in these types of things, we are waiting upon Christ Himself. What are we waiting on in these types of situations? The, 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 the time factor ought to be a time filled with prayer and even fasting and a searching of the Scriptures so that we can say, what, are we, what have we been waiting on? We've been waiting on Christ. We've been pleading with Him, begging Him, searching His Word to, to come to a clear answer. We're waiting upon Christ. To submit our grievances to the proceedings of the church is to say, I want Christ to bring peace in this hostility, in this grievance. As Paul deals with the Corinthians here, it's clear that he believes that they have everything they need to settle interpersonal discord. Everything they need. So it wasn't that the Corinthians couldn't handle these matters. It's that they wouldn't. They were choosing not to. And so often it's still true in the church. It's not that we can't settle disputes. It's not that we can't work things out, talk things out, come to an agreement. It's not that we can't. We won't. We just don't want to. We choose not to. It's not that we don't have the wisdom and instruction necessary. It's that we refuse to submit ourselves to it. I've got a better way. I'll go to the outside world. They don't submit to the Scriptures. They have different rules and laws. I'll go to them rather than bringing ourselves under the rule of Christ. Our, our Lord said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown 
and among his relatives in his own household. The principle we say is familiarity breeds contempt. Everywhere that prophet goes, everybody loves him to death until he comes back home and they say, we know him. Who is he to tell us what to do? Well, that's what happens in the church. We say of the church, people that we know the best, see the most often, who are they to know my business? Who are they to make a judgment in my case? What do they know? If we get them involved, well, I definitely won't get justice. Well, they're because they're just regular people. I'll go to somebody with a little bit of authority. I'll go to the outsiders. I'll go to the populace and get public opinion. But that thinking is contrary to the Spirit of Christ Himself. Who are they? Who are we? We are Christians. We are brothers. We are the church of Jesus Christ with all of the tools and wisdom and power necessary to handle our own affairs. The very things that make us competent to judge trivial matters are very often the things that we use as excuses for why we won't submit ourselves to the judgment of our brethren. Oh, that, she's, just a, she's just a Christian. I'm going to go to a, a lawyer. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Just a Christian? Wisdom from God put in the mind of a human being? The, the, the very Word of God in, in his or her hands? But you're going to go to outsiders? That's the contrary to the way we should think and act. Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when we have grievances between us, first we should not act surprised or people. Is it shocking? No, it shouldn't be shocking. We're sinners. We should be surprised that there aren't more grievances amongst us, seeing how closely knit together we are or ought to be. It shouldn't, be, it shouldn't surprise us. We're people, but we also keep in mind that we're Christians. And so we do things differently than the world. We're brothers and sisters. And so we love one another more deeply than those of the world. We're the church of Christ. And so we have the power, the tools, and the wisdom to handle our own issues. When there is dissension or strife, conflict, grievances, we ought to ask, as it was asked of Israel of old, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Look at a bunch of a living stones here. They have a conflict between two stones, two living stones. We're going to go to a dead stone and say, hey, can you help us figure this out? Can you iron this out for us? That doesn't make any sense. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And then we should all respond to the teaching and to the testimony. We have the Word of God. We can handle our own affairs. So let's pray that God would give us grace to act like Christians, to act like brothers, and to act like a church of Jesus Christ. For His name's sake.